0: The Pete Callender Show, News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT 704 570 1-800-WBT-1110 uh, So if you are hearing this on the podcast you, I'm going to tell you, you probably do want to go back and listen to Hour 2 because I'm going to reference the caller that I just had right uh, at the end of the last hour His name is Sonny So I'll pause for a second let you skip back Okay, so now, by the way, if you, ha- if you haven't already, you can get the podcast free, WBT.com. So the caller at the last hour, end of the last hour, Sonny, uh, I, I think, that, and this is what I said earlier about the definition of work, what works. And so Sonny has an idea of, or a definition of what masks working or mandates working means. And it's and the term work is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence, right? Doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Because if you define working as what? Preventing a single case. Is that working? Let's say that's working. That would be the, that would have to be the weakest definition for the term that I could conjure up. That it, it prevents only a single COVID case per year. That's it. Per school year. That's it. But, It's worth it. All right. What's the other side of the ledger? What is the other side of the ledger on the cost side? Which is what proponents of the mandates never really want to address. Because this is why I say we are, as a society, incapable of having this kind of a complex, moral, ethical conversation. Because we're just not equipped for it in our, you know, short attention spans and soundbite age, it's just, it's very difficult to get deep on this stuff um, at a policy level and at a, at a government affairs level. Because what's the other side of the ledger? Well, as we went over a couple weeks ago, you've got kids that have been permanently harmed because they are now behind developmentally. Whether it's kids who have a learning uh, a disability or a uh, challenge if they've got speech impediments of some kind that they're trying to, you know, uh, go through speech therapies and the like. There are all of these kids that, and that's not even to mention what the lockdowns did. This is just about the masks. You have kids who are in their formative years, and I'm talking ages, you know, three, four, five. They're learning all sorts of Vocabulary and social cues and such. And they need to see people's faces for that to occur. And that's the cost side of the ledger. So if the benefit side of the ledger for masks is that we prevent a single COVID infection and that's worth it. See what I mean? How many on the other side does it would it not be worth? Let me, I'll even do this. Let's say. The mask mandate saves one life. That's it. A mask mandate for every single school in America, and it saves a single life. However, on the other side, you're damning everybody under the age of five to permanent learning loss and permanent uh, speech impediments and and uh, expression issues. Social learning skills are 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 uh, held back. Like all of these negative impacts that we now know we inflicted on those kids. That's the trade-off. Is that worth it? See, th- these are the kinds of questions that we would explore in philosophy class back in college. And people who keep searching for, oh, there's a right answer here, and you know Pete has the right answer, and Pete's going to tell me the right answer. I don't have the right answer on this stuff. I don't. I I have my answer for it. I think that, again, when you are presented with this kind of complexity, you need some north stars. You need some principles. You might even need, I don't know, you could call it like some rules. You could call them, well, if they came from someone or something else, you could say they were commandments of some kind. right? Like a rule book that could help us all kind of function with each other. Maybe if we followed that, things might i be a little bit better, but it's good to have these principles. So they act as, as guideposts as you are debating this stuff. I mentioned this story, you know, the, the philosophical, uh, uh question about the, the, I think I did this a couple of uh, weeks ago where you know, it's a stowaway, I think was the name of the story. And it's a spaceship. It's headed to a planet. It's got all the supplies for all of the colonists. And the guy realizes he's not going to make it because he's too heavy. Why, why is the ship too heavy? And he goes searching and he finds a stowaway. And then you start exploring the ethical questions surrounding what to do. Do you, do you ditch some of the supplies and keep the stowaway, knowing that the lack of supplies means that the people on the planet are not going to have the supplies they need, which means some of them might die instead? Or do you kick the stowaway off and kill the stowaway? What if the stowaway is going uh, uh, to visit their brother? Family member, last known family member. What if the stowaway uh, was a prisoner? What if the planet, the colonists were prisoners? All right. So you have all these different types of ethical twists that you can add to the equation. And it seems like a lot of people want there to be an easy answer, and so just they say, okay, we'll do the masks. But it's not that easy. Well, do you do them for the young kids? Do you do them for the old people? Do you do them in all settings? Do you do them outside? All right. You have to have a larger uh, debate about it. But as you get more complex, you're going to lose people from a public policy and messaging standpoint, you start losing people. And so you end up with the sledgehammer approach of just, all right, everybody mask up. That's it. And at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, is the juice worth the squeeze? Always. It always comes down to that for me. Is the juice worth the squeeze? It's a cost benefit question. And, Honestly, I think there have been a lot of costs that have been made to bear by people not making the decisions because the people that are bearing a lot of the costs long term, they don't get to vote. Not yet, at least. News Talk eleven ten and ninety nine three WBT. I do like this song. Good life. All right, seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten one eight hundred WBT eleven ten, and we go to Scott. Welcome to the program. Hello, Scott. Hey. hey, Pete. Thanks. Hey, yeah. I feel I feel like it may be said earlier, but I feel like we don't say it enough. Yes kids are being harmed by this, and the population of kids that's harmed the most is those with disabilities. Yes. Uh, my son has a hearing, uh, hearing problem, and we don't realize how much we depend on seeing people's mouths and the lips move, and he can't see his teacher speak, or now he can't. Well, he didn't used to be able to, now he can. And that has irre- irreparably harmed him as he's going through elementary school and these, these years of growth and development. How old is your son? He's six, and uh, he's he's not going to like Harvard or anything, but he's a smart kid. Yeah, and and, he, and he's behind. Yeah, well, and it it, it I, I don't even know what what counts as behind anymore, right? True. Because it's been they they were held back essentially for so long that that's wouldn't that be the norm? Do we just have like a really like a like a like a snake that ate some big animal? You know, it's got like the big bulge in the middle, and like that's all of the kids. That are between would, a certain age range instead of one particular age. While a valid argument, I would say it's not true because look at the private schools. Yeah, they Stayed state in person and don't wear masks. Not true. Be ahead of our kids. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I didn't consider that. That's yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I don't like what what happened with the people who were arguing. On the other side about the school-to-prison pipeline, that if a kid can't read by age or grade three, if they're behind in math and reading, like these are the benchmarks that we have to, to go by, because you can trace a straight line, basically, to prison if they're not doing well enough in these grades, and then we just abandoned this. All of a sudden, now it's totally fine. I, 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 don't, I, I don't get it how people can make that trade-off. I guess I get it when it's not their it's not their own kids. I guess That's going to be a huge reckoning. Yeah. Well, uh, best of luck to you and uh, and your uh, your son, Scott. I hate to hear that, but um, but you, you know we're all we've all got burdens to bear, and so I guess this this is going to be his. Yeah. Thanks for the call. I, and it, and I don't know what to say to people like that. I I want to be encouraging, and I have no idea. Obviously, like the medical medical histories and how they're able to, to overcome, and people will overcome. Don't get me wrong. People will find a way, but they are being harmed, and that's never part of the cost-benefit analysis at a policy level, at the, at the government agency, public policy, elected official level. They sometimes, every now and again, towards the end of the mandates, we heard a little bit of this kind of lip service About, oh, I know people are being harmed, but we have to save some lives. But this study that just came out now, comparing mandatory masked schools and the optional masked schools. If you take a school of 500 kids, the mandatory masking policy possibly prevented one COVID case per month. That was the benefit. What were the costs? Let me jump over here to John. Hello, John. Welcome to the program. How are you? How you doing, Pete? Hey, I'm good. Hope What's to up? I see you all the time. Thank you. I, you got know, a guy, Sonny, who called into you. Yeah. The next time somebody like that calls in and he throws that seatbelt mandate up at you, you know, agree with him about the kids wearing, you know, the masks in school and then ask him why there's no seatbelts on school buses. Great point. Great point, John. I wish, you, I, w- I, wish I had thought of it. it, uh, it it's fear. But this is I I find a lot of people if you try to get to and I did it with Sonny and I do it with others is get to your, your premise, right? Make your assertion, ask the question, do it quickly, be assertive in it so we know where we stand. And I may agree with a point that but that we never would have gotten to if he persisted in the in the trapping questions. That's what I felt like. That he was trying to navigate me towards some sort of a conclusion so he could say, aha, you know, it's sort of the interrogator approach. But Uh, yeah, seatbelts on schools, man, if it saves just one life. That's right. Yeah. Why aren't there? I appreciate the call, John. Yeah. Because if you take that narrative or the the argument, if it saves just one life, you can justify truly awful things. Because life is about risk reward, risk assessment, trade-offs, And we make, for example, every single vehicle, you should have to drive not just with a seatbelt, but with harnesses and the Hans device and the whole car should fill up with that foam like, and what was it, time cop? And no car should go faster than 35 miles an hour. All sorts of things like that if we are going for safetyism as our primary principle, but we don't. There's a balance and we are all free to choose that balance all right one last point from this study that came out um national institutes of health published it and a lot of people were a lot of the branch covidians were touting it as proof that the uh you know we need to have mask mandates and they need to stay in the schools and all of this and uh tim carney just takes apart The entire study at the Washington Examiner, like, for example, the one of the things was uh, they undercounted the in-school infections in the schools that have the mandates. Why did they do that? Well, because the CDC guidance says that if kids are sitting five feet apart and they're both masked, then they don't count as close contacts. So they didn't count them. So there could have been way more cases in the schools, which, by the way, there were more cases in those schools. The study actually found many, many more covid cases in the mask mandatory schools. 136 cases per 1000 people in the mask mandatory schools compared to 54 cases per 1000 people. So it's like three times almost as much. None of this says that mandating is worth the costs. That's the key. So that's why I pushed back on that caller, Sonny, when he's asking, like, what's the gripe with the mask mandates or the mandates? you got to be very specific, because in some circumstances, I understand why the mandates were in place, especially like at nursing homes. That made a lot of sense. They're the most vulnerable people. But also, it depends on what kinds of masks. Because I think that there is a, shall we say, diminishing return the longer one wears their cloth mask. We've all seen it. Nasty. But the governor of our great state, with the emergency declaration still in place, refuses to get rid of the ED. He also vetoed the Free the Smiles bill. This would have forced schools to end their mask mandates. But the House and the Senate could not override the governor's veto. Why? Because Democrats who voted yes on the initial legislation then turned around and voted no to override the veto. That is quite clearly putting your party ahead of the right thing to do. When you flip your vote, and some of these people have done it numerous times. So here's uh, Mitch Kokai of Carolina Journal. Neither state Senate Democrat, Neither of the two who initially voted for the Free the Smiles legislation last month was willing to stick with that yes vote. Both of their yes votes turned into no when they had a chance to help override Governor Roy Cooper's veto of the school masking measure. Democrats have cast 70 yes votes to override Cooper veto since he took office in 2017. But 55 of them came in the first two years. But as soon as... Uh, As soon as the Democrats got more votes, now they they stopped doing that. If GOP lawmakers voted together in 2017 and 2018, they didn't actually even need Democrats' support to overcome a veto. Because they had super majorities for the first two years of Cooper's term. So they didn't even need the Democrats to do that. Yet still, 55 out of 70 times, Democrats went ahead and voted to override the vetoes. But as soon as Cooper, or uh, uh, sorry, as soon as the Democrats got the supermajority broken and could now use Cooper's veto to block everything. That's what they started doing. So they so now you've got the rise of these lawmakers, these Democrats who are voting for pieces of legislation, letting Cooper veto them, and then coming back and and refusing to override the veto. Cooper vetoed 28 bills during his first two years as governor. The General Assembly voted successfully to override those vetoes 23 times. The political calculus changed in 2019 when the Republicans lost the veto-proof super majority. Um, next up on this era, is like, do, 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 do. yeah, those are the years. All right, so here's Phil Berger's office. They put out a statement after Governor Cooper's veto. Every Democrat voted against overriding the veto, despite two previously supporting the bill. The bill originally passed with bipartisan support in both chambers. And uh, Dina Ballard from Watauga County, Republican state senator, she said Governor Cooper and the Senate Democrats are working against parents. This bill provides a level playing field for all families across the state since politicians continue to ignore the parents who are speaking up for their children. It's disheartening that the Senate Democrats would choose to turn their backs on families and disregard the effects masking has on our young children. So, you've got the science angle, and you maybe also have the political science angle here. There's a fellow by the name of Kirk DeVere. He's one of the Democrats who upheld the veto. He, re- he flipped his vote and would not override the veto. The other one is Senator Ben Clark. and the, uh, just, He's just one, though, not the Ben Clark Five. Anyway, both had originally voted to pass the bill and then they voted to stick with their party's governor. On Twitter, DeVere, Kirk DeVere said, I have consistently fought for the people of my community and what's right for parents, children, business owners and those that just want the government to work for them. The governor's veto in no way jeopardizes the current policy that allows our local school leaders working with parents to continue common sense policies like optional mask wearing. In a social media post by Cooper the day before that vote, the override vote, Cooper came out and backed the primary challenger against DeVere. Fellow Democrats, all three, Roy Cooper's a Democrat, Val Applewhite, former Fayetteville City Council member, she's a Democrat, and so is DeVere. But DeVere voted for the Free the Smiles Act. And then flips his vote the day after Cooper announces he's backing the challenger. Cooper said Applewhite, quote, isn't afraid to stand up to right wing Republicans as we work to build a state where everyone has an equal chance to prosper. I've got DeVere's response. Stay tuned for that. (laughs) News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Calliner Show. I'm the Pete of said show. And uh, thanks a lot for letting me hang out with you today. I appreciate it. So last week on um, March 8th, what would that have been? What's today? The 16th? So, oh, so, yeah, so eight days ago. Eight days? A week from yesterday. Week from yesterday. Okay, so a little bit over a week ago. That's when Roy Cooper, Governor Cooper put out an endorsement of Val Applewhite running for a state Senate seat, which is odd because uh, the seat is currently held by Kirk DeVere, also a Democrat. So Roy Cooper, Democrat, endorses challenger Democrat in Democratic primary to Democrat incumbent. So Republicans are nowhere near this story. This is all hot D on D action. Okay, so that's the first uh, the first step. The second then. Social media post by Roy Cooper the day before the override of the Free the Smiles Act, which would have given parents the ability to opt their kids out of mask mandates in their local schools. That was the point. It originally passed with bipartisan support. Kirk Devere, Democrat, was one of those in support of the bill. And Cooper vetoed it. And then the Senate takes it up the day after Cooper endorses DeVere's opponent and DeVere flips his vote and refuses to vote against his governor. But he also put out a statement when Roy Cooper endorsed the primary challenger for Senate District 19. This is Fayetteville area. um, He put out a lengthy statement. I'm just going to read you the last two sentences here. No endorsement. Well, maybe it's three. No endorsement. Even from the highest position in the state, will waver my commitment to represent the people of Fayetteville and Cumberland to the best of my ability. My vote has and will always be with the people of our community. This primary challenge is a direct result of putting my community over partisan politics and not being a rubber stamp. Together, we can send a message that working families have had enough of the power politics and that this seat belongs to you, the people of Cumberland County. All right. So we then come to WRAL's parent company and their Democrat hack hired by their left wing donor to write the editorials for the parent company of WRAL, the the capital broadcasting company. Trying to be slick in politics, even on the relatively local level of a state legislator, can end up a high stakes game. Just ask Democratic Senator Kirk DeVere of Cumberland County. Roy Cooper endorsed him as I went over. It's quite a turnaround for DeVere who thought he'd be able to spend his time on the campaign trail bragging, among other things, about the nearly $184 million in funding for local projects that he'd been able to secure. Because that's what he got. See, at the national level, remember I started the program off talking about all the earmarks that Democrats put back into the spending bill, and they just cleaned up. See, up at the national level, Democrats are all about the earmarks. But at the state level, no, no, no. You're not supposed to do the earmarks if it means that you vote with the Republicans. That's the rule. Sorry. Um, But getting that money may turn out to have been uh, not to have been worth the price. Joining with the lockstep Republicans on key school and spending votes gave the legislature's Republican leadership, particularly Senate Leader Phil Berger, critical leverage over the democratic governor during the intense and delicate budget negotiations this past fall. Now what happened was they couldn't get Medicaid expansion, which is what Cooper was trying to get leverage for. That was the deal. But the kicker on that is that he couldn't get it in the house. So key Cooper initiatives were left off the final budget deal, left out of the final budget deal. Cooper, key staffers and advisors we're far from reserved or discreet at their deep disappointment in the positions that Devere has taken because of the impact it had on the governor's bargaining position. So they're saying because, so Devere is like the North Carolina version of Joe Manchin. So they're very upset. So they, they're going to primary him. And I love this line for, for North Carolina voters it's another demonstration of the toll taken when political games overtake the needs of the state. But you notice here, The narrative that they help advance, which is, of course, that Roy Cooper ain't playing no politics on any of this. No, 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 no. He's just out for the people. He's looking out for the folks like Bill O'Reilly. That's all. No, no, it's just Devere. See, Devere working with the Republicans in a bipartisan fashion to help people of his district. Those are political games. Don't you see? Those are the political games that we should all be critical of. How dare you deliver $184 million worth of projects to your district? How dare you? So, I mean, at the national level, it's perfectly okay, and we expect that sort of thing. But at the state level, completely out of bounds. Um, there was another story here on... I think I already packed it away because I had to do the studio handoff, so I think I already packed it up in my bag. Um But I remember the details because when you read the stories two times before you do it on the air, you kind of remember. So there was another state lawmaker who just let loose on Cooper over this as well. He's he's another Democrat, Billy something or other. I forget his name. Anyway, he lets loose on Cooper saying, stay the heck out of this, out of these primaries. You should not be primarying fellow Democrats. Now, remember, sorry, I forgot to point this out. And I always try to make a point to point these things out at the very beginning, which is. It's never a uh, civil war when it occurs inside of the Democratic Party. It's only a civil war inside the Republican Party. It's a key piece of information. That's one of the rules of journalisming. I don't know why this rule came about, but it's only called a civil war when it's inside the GOP. Anyway, this is not a civil war. This could be Dems in disarray. I know they don't like that term. Uh, but you've got lawmakers now that are hacked off at Roy Cooper for like going out, and getting a primary challenger and funding her against an incumbent democratic state lawmaker. But this is what we've known this for years. Roy Cooper has been doing this for years. He did it against his own party on HB two as well. It's why I say the guy is a machine politician. He will sacrifice you, the citizens other the lawmakers. If it advances his political agenda or his power, he's done it for years. We've been telling people this all, for years, and now it's all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. Brett Winterville coming up next. Stay tuned. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Don't break anything while I'm gone.